Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It's Friday, May 28th, 2021. As I always do with a bonus interview, I read you the headline in the newspaper so that if you're listening to this years from now, you'll know what's going on. All right? That's a good idea. So for this interview, I'm going to flip the paper, my beloved bright one, home delivered every day, Chicago Sun-Times, and go to the sports section. You'll see why in a little bit. Route 60% is the headline. Hoyer discusses what increasing fan capacity at Wrigley could mean to Cubs' bottom line. Route 60%. I'll tell you what, that's sometimes they got a million jokes. Good God, they must have like comedy writers in the newsroom these days. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thank you, Ben. My name is Bill Bike, and I'm the author of a new book. It's called The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow. Yes. Uh, it's 70s weekend on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, this show is being dropped on a Sunday. We're recording it on a Friday. You probably already heard my extravaganza with Mick Dumkey, the greatest song, the greatest records, excuse me, of 1971. For some reason, it's like a 70s vibe going on. And uh, so this is kind of in that same theme. Not 1971. The year is 1970. It's the Chicago Cubs. And if you know anything about the Chicago Cubs, you know that 1970 is the year after. But I'm going to let Bill Bike explain all this. Bill, uh, what made you decide to write a book about the 1970 Cubs as opposed to the 1969 Cubs, which, of course, are legendary in Cub lore? Well, there's so many books out there about the 1969 Cubs, and actually Fergie Jenkins just wrote one uh, about a year or two ago, so people are still writing them. But nobody ever writes about the 1970 Chicago Cubs, who I think were the more, more interesting team. Uh, that year they got Joe Pepitone, who was a, a fan favorite for a few years. They got Milt Pappas, who uh, the fans liked a lot too, and who really solidified their pitching rotation. And just a lot of interesting stuff happened that year. They put the... Uh, the basket around Wrigley Field. And uh, besides Pappas and Pepitone, 
they acquired a bunch of players that year that kind of had bad boy reputations. Now, if you think about the Chicago Cubs in the 60s and 70s, they were they had a conservative management who loved to get players with short haircuts and no facial hair. And so in 1970, they kind of threw that conservative uh, way of thinking out the window, and they just tried to get whoever they could to, to try to finally put them over the hump after they didn't quite make it in 69. So nobody talks about 70, but it was actually my favorite year when I was a kid. All right. Well, let's, before we go uh, into the Cubs, let's talk about young Bill Bike uh, in 1970, uh, who first got the, uh, what, the, the bug for the Cubs. Just tell folks a little bit about yourself, where you were living, where you grew up, what schools you were going to, that kind of thing. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I lived in the Logan Square area, and I went to uh, St. Sylvester School. And uh, in those days, as people remember, the Cubs played all day games. And so the play uh, bleacher bums had it right. The moms actually knew more about the team than the dads did because uh, the dads were working all day and the moms mostly worked at home and they had the TV on and they were able to watch the Cubs. And the Cubs also had ladies day back then. And so when I was a kid, 68, 69, 70, uh, it was a great thing for the moms to uh, take the kids to the uh, ballpark um, so basically the moms got in free, the kids got in with a kid's ticket for a dollar. Uh, the CTA was cheap. I bet my mother didn't spend more than $5 the whole day. So I probably went to, uh, about 20 games a year back then. Most of them with my mother or one of the other moms who, you know, always took us kids. It was a, a great day of entertainment at a cheap price. Back then. Now, were you one of those kids? Uh, so you're born in Chicago, raised in Chicago, North side, Chicago, and I believe you went to Gordon Tech, if I'm correct. Am I right about that? I did. did you go to, yeah, to your yeah. Ram, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your Ram tough. Gordon Tech's Gordon Tech's not around anymore, but I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's now called DePaul. They just changed the name. Um, true story, by the way, it is it is DePaul High School. Anyway, neither here nor there. So you're North Side Chicago kid all the way, Bill. Are you one of those Chicagoans? Because you grew up on the north side and because your mom took you to Wrigley Field at an early age, that you hate the White Sox? No, absolutely not. You know, uh, I think uh, the mainstream media likes to play up the rivalry, but I think most Chicagoans, uh, since our teams win so seldom, I think we're happy <laughs> when any team wins. And so I mostly rooted for uh, the Cubs uh in the late 60s, early 70s. But when Bill Beck bought the White Sox in 1976, that was so much fun with all the crazy promotions he was doing. Now, he didn't use a midget like he did in the 50s. But, uh, you know, I remember when Bill Beck put the shower in in Comiskey Park and he had a 10 a.m. game one time with a guy sleeping in the bed in center field. And so Bill Beck just made it so much more fun that uh, I really started uh, liking both teams. Plus the fact that since my dad worked during the day, the only uh, place my dad could take me to a ball game was Comiskey Park anyway. So I've uh, really rooted for both teams since then. A couple of buddies of mine and I actually had a 20-game season ticket plan in 1983 when the Sox ended up winning the division. We actually got the plan because we wanted to get the All-Star game tickets, and we ended up seeing a division champion that year too. So I like both teams, um, and I have 1970. Oh my God, 1983, you're haunting me now. For a White Sox fan, that's <laughs> sort of like 1969. Dibzinski at second base. I will not relive that moment, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just going to let it pass. Baltimore Orioles, playoff <laughs> game. Sox on the verge of making the World Series. Dibzinski, round second. No, I don't want to think about it, Bill Bike. Let's go back to the Cubs. I'm with you, by the way. 
Uh, I, I'm not from Chicago. I've moved here uh, relatively late in life. And so I just embraced both teams as an opportunity, as you put it, to have a chance to win. And then I quickly realized that zero times two is still zero. And so if you're never going to win, it doesn't matter how many teams you have in the city. Uh, And uh, so I love both teams. I believe the shower was in Comiskey Park before Vec. Just fact-checking you there a little bit, Bill. Um, But I share your love for Bill Vec and the, the 1977 uh, Hitman, oh, what a great year that was for White Sox baseball. But let's go back to the Cubs. I was a Cub fan as well. So, all right, so we set this, the scene, 1969. Let's usher in 1970, which is the year you wrote about in your book. 1969, our beloved Cubs were up by about, what was it, 13 games in August. I have the exact number not in mind, or 10 games. And then those dastardly New York Mets got red hot. The Cubs' knees started knocking. And next thing you know, the Mets had won the division uh, and the Cubs had finished second. Uh, Was your heart broken in 1969, uh, Bill? My heart was broken in 1969. And the problem with 1969, it was a slow lingering death. You know, the the, uh, Cubs, like you said, were up by about 10 games in August. By about the beginning of September, they were still up about four and a half games. And then they hit a, a losing streak, and uh, they lost about uh, 10 in a row, and the Mets were winning all those games. And so really within within a week, you know, they, they dropped into second place after leading for 155 uh, days that summer. And then it was just kind of a slog through the rest of September. We were hoping they would catch fire. They never did. The Mets still uh, stayed hot, and the Cubs uh, – after leading all that time, actually ended up uh, eight games behind at the end of the season. So it was a, uh, a miserable September for all of us. I was 12 years old, and I've got a friend who I went to grade school with, and she says there's been two tragedies in her life, her divorce and the 1969 Chicago Cubs, and I think she would actually rank the Cubs first if I uh, pressed her on. <laughs> uh, by the way, so before we move into seven, I just have to uh, finish up with 69. Were you the kind of kid who, because the Cubs lost to the Mets, hated the Mets, or did you end up rooting for the Mets because they beat the Cubs? Go ahead. Uh, I absolutely hated the Mets. I think a lot of people my age not only hated the Mets then, but hate the Mets to this day. And, uh, there is no way I would uh, root for the Mets in the play in the playoffs. Uh, Mets played the Braves. I was rooting for Hank Aaron, and the Braves. In the uh, World Series, they played the Orioles. I was rooting for Frank Robinson and the Orioles. Uh, none of those teams came through. Came true for me. So uh, basically, I had to spend the winter. You know, the Mets got uh, so much media opportunities too. So there were Mets on TV shaving, Mets on TV <laughs> buying gasoline. It was kind of a miserable winter. Let me tell you. Yeah, uh, that's funny. But you know, I have to tell you once again, I'm the contrarian, Bill. As much as I love the Cubs and want them to win, and uh, I was happy for the Mets. I thought they were a cool team. I loved, they had that, like, they, uh, I'm going to now bring both my worlds into it. Uh, New York City politics I found fascinating from afar. Uh, John Lindsay was running for re-election in 1969. It was improbable uh, that he would win re-election with all the strife that was going on in New York. And he tied his campaign to the Mets. And I was just into it, man. The Mets, oh, yeah, and uh so I, I was rooting for him. I got to admit, I, I did not hold a grudge. Uh, and um, I was rooting for him 
a great memory, by the way, playing the uh, Braves and uh, the Orioles. So, yeah, but I do know that there's people that – Mike Royko, the great columnist, the legendary columnist, always talked about how uh, – he would watch the after the Mets beat the Cubs. He would watch the movie Failsafe, uh, which is about an A bomb being dropped on uh, New York or something. Like he made a joke about it. Like you know, he always wanted New York. Nothing but bad to happen to New York because the Mets beat the Cubs. All right, nineteen seventy. So um, the Cubs did not win in nineteen seventy either. Uh, what was the difference in the loss? The way they lost in nineteen seventy from the way they lost in 1969? Well, in uh, 69, they led for 155 days before they started collapsing in September. Uh, in 70, the uh, collapse, the, the June swoon, if you will, happened in June. They were uh, sailing along in first place. And as a matter of fact, they started the season in 70 so hot that no Cub team had matched it until uh, last year in 2020. And so the, the Cubs were just sailing along and they hit uh, a streak that was totally inexplicable in June where they lost 12 games in a row. And so when their pitching would pitch, uh, their hitting wouldn't hit. When they would score 10 runs and the other team would score 12. And it was just, you know, on the face of it, it was inexplicable. But it was an interesting period during that 12-game losing streak because Leo DeRocher, that's kind of when he lost control of the team. Leo had gotten a little bit of criticism the year before for the way he handled the team because in 69 he kind of managed the way he had in the 1940s where he just played the same guys day after day after day didn't matter how tired they were didn't matter how good the bench was because they had a good bench in 69 but he just played the same guys every day and they were tired well you know he learned his lesson he wasn't he wasn't doing that in 70 he was actually platooning guys a little bit they had a a good bench in 70 as well but uh the bloom was off the rose with Leo after 69, after the collapse of 69. And so the press took a, a lot more critical look at Leo. And what happened in June, Leo, at the beginning of the season, he had gotten a radio show in the evenings with uh, WIND AM radio. And uh, that was okay. You know, Bob players, managers, I mean, they all do a little something to supplement their income, particularly back then when they weren't making a lot of money. But in June, Leo got the strange idea that he wasn't going to talk to the press anymore, and he wasn't going to talk to the players anymore. He was just going to reveal the moves he was going to make on WIND radio. And so, you know, he would go to a press conference after the game and say, I really got nothing to say. And then literally two hours later on his radio show, he would talk about players that uh, player moves he was going to make and uh, lineup changes he was going to make. So there was one point in the street where Ron Sano was at home eating his dinner, listening to Leo's show on the radio. And Sano found out that Leo was not going to play Sano in the next uh, two games. He was going to play Paul Popovich at third third base. Well, that was news to Sano. I'm sure his, his dinner didn't taste too good that <laughs> night. And uh, there were a couple of players, uh, Ricky Jim Dunnigan, and there was a veteran, Steve Barber. And before Leo even told Barber and Dunnigan that they were going to be sent to the minors, he told the radio audience that. So that really exacerbated the 12-game uh, streak because, you know, the, the press was on Leo. The players didn't know what was going on, and that certainly didn't help uh, the situation. And so uh, eventually when that hit the fan, Leo uh, said that he was going to resign from the radio show, that it was nothing but his idea. I kind of think it was Mr. Wrigley's idea or, 
or John Holland, the general manager's idea. But anyway, Leo lost his radio show and things kind of went back there to normal <laughs> a little bit and the Cubs started uh, playing pretty good again. But that was was one of the stranger incidents of of the season where uh, the manager's radio show actually kind of caused a 12-game losing streak. Yeah, Leo Drosser, what a character. By the way, uh, Leo was just ahead of his time. Uh, uh, in the in the sport of basketball, there's a great guard for the Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie Irving, uh, who uh, announced not too long ago that he wasn't going to talk to uh, the press anymore. Uh, he said he didn't talk to pawns. I, 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 this is one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard out of a, 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 any athlete uh, in any sport in my entire life. Yeah, I don't talk to pawns. <laughs> I'm like, well, like who are like the kings and the queens that you will talk to? Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, Leo is just ahead of his time. Uh, now, when they went on that 12-game losing streak, which I forgot, I guess I put it out of my mind because uh, young Benny Jarofsky was fervently <laughs> following all this stuff, uh, Bill, as much as you were back in 1970. He was a huge Cubs fan. Uh, but I, I, I literally have put it out of my mind. So when they were losing those twelve in a row, um, where there were the, was the press, it was a different world. There was obviously no Instagram, no Twitter, etc. and so forth. Was the press harping on? Could this be nineteen sixty nine all over again? Could this curse have followed the Cubs to a new year? Were they doing that kind of coverage, Bill? That was exactly the kind of coverage that they were doing, and. Uh... Within that uh, 12-game losing streak, there was a five-game series at Wrigley Field against the New York Mets where the Cubs lost all five games. And that was one of those, <laughs> if, if the Cubs scored 10 runs, the Mets scored 12. And there was actually one game that was so bad that the Cubs pitchers and catchers didn't even use signs anymore because they were worried about the uh, Mets stealing their signs. So the, the pitcher would just kind of throw the ball and, and hope the catcher was going to catch it without knowing exactly what it was. So things you know, got pretty bad. And so it was actually the Mets that dropped the Cubs out of first place yet again. And the headline on the Sun-Times was, help, help, 1969 replay, Cubs lose again. So that's exactly <laughs> how uh, the media played it. And uh, as a matter of fact, that, that kind of brings up a greater point because in 69, the Cubs had collapsed. But if they had won it in 70, I don't think anybody would have remembered the collapse in 1970. Just like when the White Sox won the pennant in 1959, nobody really remembered all their near misses throughout the 50s where the Sox finished either second or third. And same thing back in the 50s, the Milwaukee Braves, when they finally won the pennant in 57, nobody remembered that they came close in 55 and 56, but didn't quite make it. So I think if the Cubs would have made it in 70, we wouldn't have been talking about uh, 69 for the next 50 years. But I think it also you know, kind of cast a pall on the, uh, Chicago sports altogether, because then we saw the Blackhawks collapse in 71. We saw some of those Bulls collapses in the early 70s. And so 70 was kind of a key year because it it kind of put this cloud over Chicago that was uh, over us for many years when it came to, came to sport. All right. Now I'm going to make a distinction as an old time Chicago sports fan okay. between collapses and just not good enough. <laughs> uh, the 1969 Cubs was a collapse. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, they have, I think, three Hall of Famers on that team. They were also on the 70 team, and I will now name them. Let's see if I can do this. Ernie Banks, Fergie Jenkins, Billy Williams, four. Ron Sano got into the Hall of Fame after he died. So this is a great collection of players. They were better than the Mets. They had the lead. Leo DeRocher did not manage well. He had players playing in the heat. Here I am reviving the memory. Did not think strategically. And they collapsed. 
then they got that that worm entered their uh, brains, which which is uh oh, the panic sets in uh, in 1970. I, my beloved Chicago Bulls that lost at those same times in 71 to the Bucks and in 72 to the Lakers, 73 to the Lakers. They were just not as good as the teams they were playing. They were defeated by superior teams. Look, look at my feeble defense to defend my beloved Bulls. Still defending the Bulls. Now, I will tell you this, Bill. I'll go one step further. Had the Cubs won in 70, 69 would have been totally the, um, how would I do this? The, like, the legacy of 69 would be, much the same of the legacy that the Bulls had in those years where they were losing to the Pistons, building up to 91 where they swept them. It'd be like a, a progression, a positive progression that they learned from their mistakes. I could, I could hear the, the interviews, you know, with the Cubs, like, yeah, 69 was terrible, but, you know, from the ashes of that defeat, we learned a lot about ourselves. We looked in the mirror. I hear it right now with Milwaukee Bucks fans talking about, oh, this is our year because we emerged. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, because they didn't win in 1970, uh, 69 remained this terrible legacy as opposed to a stepping stone. What do you think of that theory? No, I, I think that's a great theory. Uh, and I will agree with you on the Bulls teams. They didn't collapse. They just uh, kind of weren't that good. But you you got to agree that the, the Blackhawks uh, collapsed in the 1971 Stanley Cup Finals against the Canadians where – you know, they, there was no way they were going to lose that seventh game, and then they did. And so, you know, besides, you know, the Blackhawks, I mean, obviously, then you had the cloud over the Cubs where in, in 84, they won the first two playoff games, lost the next three. 2003, they should have won the pennant two, and then we had the Bartman game, and then game seven after that. So it took a long, long time for the Cubs in particular to, to lose that attitude that somehow, some way, we're going to collapse. Yeah, no, you're right. And by the way, as soon as I said, I remember 1973 Bulls game where they were up by five with about a minute left to the Lakers and they lost. So I don't know. Maybe you could argue that they collapsed too. Um, so, all right, Bill, let's go back to the 1970 uh, Cubs and some of these great characters. Uh, and my opinion, I may have shared this with you, I've, I've written this, is that as time goes on, it becomes less important to me whether the team I root for wins uh, as opposed to whether the team I root for entertained me and got me through uh, some boring days or some cold days in the case of the winter or some rough days, uh, that kind of thing. They they were uh, uh, a welcome diversion. Uh, the Cubs of 70 had some great characters. Let's start with Joe Pepitone. Tell folks a little bit about Joe Pepitone. I know millennials have no idea who he is and uh, his his background. Well, Joe Pepitone was a native New Yorker who played with the Yankees throughout the 60s. And he was a guy, he liked to party. He liked to smoke a little marijuana. He was a playboy, you know, so he had a lot of great looking girlfriends. And so he was he was good for New York, but he kind of wore out his, his welcome with the conservative Yankees. And unfortunately for Joe, they traded him to an even more conservative team, the Houston Astros. And so at first, he was, was kind of excited about coming to the National League because at the time, the National League was more of a fastball league and the American League was more of a, a curveball slider league and Joe really could hit the fastball. But uh, Harry Walker, who was the manager of the Houston Astros, was a very conservative guy. And Joe wore out his welcome in Houston and after a half of a year. And so the Cubs, at the end of July, 
to everybody's surprise because the Cubs were always considered a conservative organization, bought Joe Pepitone from the Houston Astros. And Pepitone, like I say in the book, if, if Ernie Banks was Mr. Cub, Joe Pepitone should have been Mr. Anti-Cub because, like I said, partier, drinker, playboy. And But the, the fans absolutely loved them because what that acquisition showed is that the Cubs were actually super serious about winning the pennant that year because the Cubs had not gotten a high-quality marquee player in the, begin, in the middle of the season since 1945 when they acquired a pitcher named Hank Barrowe from the Yankees who ended up uh, being their top starter in 1945. So uh, Joe played his first two games in uh, Cincinnati with the Cubs, uh, which were actually the Cubs' first two games in Riverfront Stadium ever because the uh, the uh, Red Switch Stadium's in the middle of the season that year. And so Joe immediately won the first game with the game-winning RBI. Uh, he got a hit in the second game, too. And by the time they came home from the road trip, there was actually a guy who owned a limousine. His name was uh, Fabulous Howard. And uh, he decided to squire Joe around town for the rest of the year in the limousine. And he would announce Joe's appearance someplace by uh, playing the Bridge on the River Quiet team, uh, team on his part uh, of the limo. And then uh, when he would park the limo, he would roll out a red carpet for Joe. So this was this was the type of uh, character that Joe Pepitone was. And he just absolutely loved Chicago. He loved the nightlife. He ended up opening up a bar on Rush Street. And he loved playing for Leo DeRocher, too, because, as Joe said, Leo is just an older version of me because Leo was a ladies' man just like Joe was. Leo was a drinker just like Joe was. So these two guys fit together like father and son. And so Joe had a great second half of the 1970 season, and he actually had his best season of his career in 1971 with the Cubs. So it was a great acquisition. And actually at the uh, end of uh, August, the last game the Cubs played in San Diego that year, Joe Pepitone hit the home run to win the game, and the Cubs were only one game out, and they were back in the pennant race. So it was one of the best mid-season acquisitions that the Chicago Cubs ever did. And uh, let's contrast uh, Joe Pepitone's relationship with Leo Jarocher, as you just outlaid it, uh, with Ernie Banks. So Ernie Banks, of course, Mr. Cub, uh, I would say he's the greatest Cub of all time. We can have that discussion another time, but uh, that's just my opinion. He's definitely my favorite Cub from the 60s at the time in real time. Uh, He was the first baseman. Uh, and he's replaced by Joe Pepitone, completely different public personas, Ernie Banks and Joe Pepitone, and completely different relationships with Leo Jarocher. Uh, why don't you take uh, the deep dive, Bill, in explaining Ernie Banks' persona and his relationship with Leo Jarocher? Well, Ernie Banks, and uh, he definitely is Mr. Cub and uh, still one of our the most popular uh, Chicago Cubs in history. And, and in fact, my publish, publisher liked him so much actually put Ernie's uh, picture on the cover of my book twice, not just once. So uh, Ernie was super popular with the fans, and particularly throughout the 50s and the early 60s, when they really had nobody else. They had Ernie Banks, and they had a a bunch of guys that nobody remembers. And so when Leo took the team over in 66, Leo always liked to be the center of attention. And Ernie was the center of attention with the Cubs, and Leo just didn't like him, and particularly because – you know, Leo was a, a partier, kind of a snarky guy, and uh, Ernie Banks was just a solid citizen, always happy, always friendly. So these two guys just had completely different personalities. And so even though Ernie was still in his prime in 66 when Leo took over the team, 
Leo was always looking for a different first baseman to try to uh, take Banks's place. So he tried uh, guys like John Bacabella, who was a catcher, and that didn't work out. And he, he tried a bunch of other guys. And he would always end up putting Ernie back in first base because they really didn't have anybody else who was as good. So Ernie was firmly ensconced at first base in 1970. And in fact, 1970 was the year that Ernie hit his 500th home run on uh, May 12th of that year. But uh, Ernie was getting older by that time, and so he had bad knees. And so Ernie was on the disabled list a couple of times. And so it wasn't really, you know, Leo's fulfillment of his uh, evil plan to put Joe in uh, Ernie's place, but it was more that uh, Ernie was injured by that time. And so they needed Pepitone. Uh, Pepitone could play center field and he could play first base. And so you kind of saw some platooning, which was unusual from Leo DeRocher. So sometimes you had Jim Hickman at first sometimes Joe Pepitone, sometimes Ernie Banks. So, uh, but like I said, Leo really liked Joe and Joe re- really liked Leo because those two guys were two peas in a pot. No, oh, that's so weird that the guy could not get along with Ernie Banks, but he got along with Joe Pepitone. There's, uh, I'll tell you what, the Cubs are a weird outfit. I'm just going to say, you know, and I wasn't thinking of these things in 1970 or, uh, Bill, I was just a kid loving the Cubs, but it's fascinating to hear your t- uh, tale of the dysfunction. <laughs> behind uh the facade uh by the way joe pepitone wasn't he the cub with the hairpiece or am i mixing him up with another cub didn't joe pepitone have a hairpiece no you've got that exactly right and he actually had a couple of hair pieces because he had a more a bigger and bushier one for when he was going out uh, to rush street and then he had a, a littler one that he could wear under his cap for the game so you know kind of like carl reiner and big van dyke you know not just uh, or alan brady you know, not just one toupee, but uh, a whole bunch of them. That is pretty funny. I, f- I remember Mike Rickery used to have a field day with the hairpiece. Uh, and why he felt compelled to wear a hairpiece while he's playing baseball. I mean, he got a hat on. No one could see anyway. Uh, but whatever. And the other thing was, uh, as you pointed out, Joe Pepitone loved uh, the Rush Street action after a cup game. He'd go down to Rush Street and drink and party, et cetera, and so forth, have a good time. Well, this is in the days when the Cubs had no lights. They had no night games. So it was an early ring, 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 you know, up with the cock-a-doodle-doo with the robins and the, the crows and stuff because um, you had to get to Wrigley Field. What time? For batting practice? I, would be, I guess it would be around 11 o'clock in the morning or something. When would batting practice be, Bill, back in those days? Oh, yeah, I think that was about uh, 10.30. And being a, being a kid then, you know, 13 years old, I mean, us kids just loved going there as early as possible, you know, when the gates opened at about 1030 so we could watch uh, batting practice. So, you know, we had fun for a few hours, uh, you know, even before the game started. But uh, one of the Cubs starting pitchers that year was Bill Hands. They had a great starting rotation. And Bill Hands always felt that Wrigley Field was actually an advantage for the Cubs because when the other teams would come into town, you know, they would uh, spend a lot of time partying at night. And then, you know, they would have to get up you know, at eight, nine, ten in the morning to get to the, the ballpark on time. And he felt that uh, that was an advantage for the Cubs. But you're right. You know, Joe was Joe was out late on Rush Street and he had to uh, get to the park about 10 o'clock the next day. But like I said, he just loved playing for the Cubs. And, uh, you know, it was it was kind of all right with him. And he actually, you know, compared to what he did in New York, he kind of cut down his partying a little bit when he was in Chicago because he was actually, you know, pretty serious. He wanted he wanted the Cubs to win the, the pennant in 1970. 
All right. So in these days, uh, it would be there were two divisions, uh, and then the winners of the division would uh, battle it out in a uh, what was it? A, a, it was four out of there was three out of five, I think, that back in then. Three out of uh, five. Series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to get to the World Series. So baseball's gone through a lot of uh, transitions. Uh, they've been changing their postseason format. Now it's almost like basketball or hockey. So many teams get in. There's so many playoff games. But back then, it was really a challenge. So the Cubs lost to the Mets in 69. Uh, what happened in 70? Who did they lose to? And uh, how did it go down? You know, it's kind of surprising that uh, the 70 season is forgotten because it was really one of the best pennant races that the National League has seen because it was three teams. It was the Pittsburgh Pirates, New York Mets, and Chicago Cubs, and any given day, you know, one of the three was going to be in first, second, or third. They kept switching, you know, the entire year. It was really, it was really a, a tight, close, hot pennant race, kind of like the one in the, the American League in 1967, where it went down the last day, and you had the the White Sox, the Twins, the Tigers, and the Red Sox. I mean, just a multi-team pennant race like that. You know, you see a lot of two-team pennant races. You don't often see a three-team pennant race like that where it was just, you know, really sometimes just percentage points separated those teams. So it was it was a great pennant race. Sometimes the Pirates would be up, sometimes the Cubs, sometimes the Mets. And it really came down to the, the final weekend. And so back in 69, the Cubs were really done by about, you know, early to middle of September. But uh, the Cubs were still in it up to the last weekend of uh, the 70 season when uh, – the Pirates won and the, the Cubs lost in Philadelphia and that eliminated them. And the Cubs still had four games to go in uh, New York. But for the Cubs to still be in it with only four games left in the season, we hadn't seen that since 1945. It was just a great time race that year. And who went on to win? So the Pirates ended up winning the division. And so uh, the Eastern Division champion Pirates played the uh, big red machine Cincinnati Reds in the uh, playoffs. And the Reds uh, swept them in three, but you know, I believe, and a lot of baseball experts believe, that the Cubs actually would have beaten the Reds in that playoff series. And I'll tell you why. Number one, although the Reds were considered the big red machine, the Cubs actually were more of a scoring machine than the Reds were that year. So the Cubs actually scored more runs that year than the Reds did. The Reds, it, their prowess was kind of skewed because they played in the Western Division, which was kind of weak that year. So the Mets, the, uh, the Reds rather won their division by about 18 or 20 games, which showed they were just playing a, a lot of, you know, weak opponents. And so not only were the Cubs, you know, high, a higher scoring team that year, but if you look at the Cubs in 70, 71, 72, those big red machine years, the Cubs either split the season series with the Reds or won the season series with the Reds every single year. And I remember seeing an interview with Pete Rose one time with the Reds and Pete was never a, a fan of the Cubs, but even Pete Rose said that for some reason in those years, the, the Cubs had the Reds number and the Reds just couldn't beat the Cubs. So I think if the Cubs would have won the Eastern Division, I think they would have beat the Reds in the playoffs and uh, gone to the World Series against the Baltimore Orioles. Bill, this is a, uh, since you raised it, I got to ask you this. Maybe you don't know the answer. Pete Rose cannot stand the uh, Chicago Cubs. It's so obvious. As recently as 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series and Pete Rose was part of the crew that uh, with Frank Thomas uh, and A-Rod that would analyze the games, even then you could see his anti-comp venom 
coming out of his mouth like he would degrade the Cubs. I kind of kind of appreciated it. You know what I mean? In a way. Uh, what's with Pete Rose and the Cubs? Why would why does he got this dislike for the Cubs? That actually traces back to 1969. And you remember uh, the bleacher bums. The bleacher bums were just very vocal. And so Pete was actually, uh, in 69, he was a left fielder. You know, I think people remember him as being like a third baseman for all those big red machine teams. But he actually, you know, Pete could play a lot of positions. So in 69, he was a left fielder. And the left field bleacher bums were really well known for their their venomous, you know, uh, cheering against players from the opposite team. And so I actually remember a game in 69 where there was some guy in uh, the bleachers who had a crutch and actually threw the crutch at Pete yes. Rose in left field. And back then, <laughs> uh, the, the management yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, so security conscious. I mean, there was a, a lot of ways to, you know, a lot of stuff got thrown on the field back then. And that's actually why the Cubs put in the basket around the outfield laws in 1970 to keep people from throwing stuff on the field anymore. So Pete Rose, you know, his antipathy towards the Cubs traces back to the, the bleacher bums really getting on him in 69. But I re, you know, I remember what you were talking about in 2016 and it was kind of sweet, you know, because Pete Rose was talking about how he just thought it was the worst idea to, to bring up Kyle Schwarber after he had not played the entire season. And so literally in that first World Series game, when Joe Buck was repeating what Pete Rose had said in the pregame show, that there was no way that, that Schwarber was going to play any good, that he would probably strike out four times that night, immediately Schwarber hit a home run and or, or hit a double, and that was just oh. like super sweet. But one yeah, more Pete sweet. Rose story. Uh -huh. One more Pete Rose story. After the Cubs, you remember in, in 84, every, every Cub fan does, that the Cubs won the first two games. All they needed was one more uh, win in San Diego to, to win the, uh, the pennant, and uh, they lost the three. And so Pete Rose made the joke, you know, did you hear about the new Cub sandwich? You take two bites and then you choke. So there's always been <laughs> antipathy between Pete Rose and the Cubs, and uh, I'm really glad that Schwarber hit that uh, double in the in the World Series in 2016. No, I appreciate it, Rose. I appreciate I, I I've always appreciated Pete Rose. Uh, I was at Wrigley Field in 1985. I think I think it was maybe in his 4,000th. I can't remember, but he got a very important hit in his chasing of uh, Ty Cobb. And then he went on and broke yeah. the record uh, back in Cincinnati. I think it was in Cincinnati. But um, yeah, so I have always appreciated Pete Rose and uh, uh, I've cheered him on, loved Charlie Hustle. And I remember, and this is, I, I made this point last week at a discussion on the show, Bill. Uh, fast forward to the Tony LaRussa. Uh, this is a scandal, if you will, where Tony LaRussa called out his player for hitting a swing at a 3 0 pitch, hitting a homer. Uh, at the end of a game, they were blowing him out. I'm like, and he said, well, there's this unwritten rule that you don't humiliate the uh, opposition and that when you've got the lead, you, you don't uh, put it in her face. I'm like, Pete Rose never played that. If that was an unwritten rule, I know Pete Rose didn't abide by that rule. Pete Rose, I think it was in 1970, uh, was the player who scored from second in an all-star game plowing over Ray Fossey, uh, Bill. May have been 71, well, either 70 or 71. I can't remember at the moment. Uh, and and screwed up Ray Fossey's career. No, you're you're exactly right. That was in the 1970 All Star Game, and so that uh, replay has been shown on TV probably thousands of times since then. But what nobody ever mentions is that the guy who got the hit 
to drive Jim in Pete Hickman. Rose with <laughs> Jim Hickman, exactly, who was having his best season in 1970 and made the All-Star game. And like I say in my book, Hickman barely got to the game because he took a, a different flight than the other Cubs for some reason, and the flight got delayed. And so Hickman didn't even get any bat- batting practice that day. And so when he came up in, I believe that was the 10th inning, I mean, he hadn't even – you know, warmed up or anything, and he got the hit to win the game, and Pete Rose barreled in the Ray Fossey. And back then, nobody thought that that was strange. They just thought that was the game, the way it was played. And and since then, Pete's gotten uh, criticism for that, and it did screw up Ray Fossey's career. Although, Fossey was with the uh, Cleveland Indians then, who weren't going to go anyplace. And since Fossey was not quite the catcher he was uh, – after that, he ended up uh, getting traded to the Oakland A's, and he played on the World Championship team. So, you know, yeah, his career wasn't as good as it could have been, but he also got a few World Series rings, which I think a few of the Cubs would have liked to have gotten. So, uh, yeah. you know, whether uh, Rose did the right thing or the wrong thing, uh, it's up to others to decide. But there really were no unwritten rules then. Uh, basically, you did whatever uh, whatever it took to win. All right, Bill, let's close by you telling folks the name of the book and where they can get it. Okay, the name of the book is The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs Go and Glow, because go and glow, the Cubs will go and glow in 7-0. That was, that was Ernie Banks's uh, catchphrase for the season. And so uh, you can get it at, at any bookstore. You can get it on any bookseller's website, or you could go to www.1970chicagocubs.com, and it's a whole website devoted to the book. Very good. Bill Bike, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, go Cubs, go Sox. Right, Bill? Absolutely. I love them both. All right. That's Bill Bike. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.